hiring, firing, management, performance, like goal setting, accountability, like those are the vitamins and you got to do it every single day. And if you don't do it, so like if you see something that needs feedback, so like, hey, the the standard in our business is if you take a lead, you BCC the list and know that to show everybody that you have it. If mm -hmm. you see somebody not do that, you have to course correct quickly with feedback and say, hey, here's the playbook for that type of stuff. One, everyone. We've got Adam Lawrence on the pod today. Adam's been building startups for the past dozen or so years, and he's seen in his words, the good, the bad, and the ugly. An example of that that I'd love to dig in today is he was the head of operations at Bolt, which at one point was the fastest growing fintech, where a ton of controversy led to, I'm sure, plenty of lessons that I'd love to talk about with Adam, whatever he feels comfortable sharing. And then in 2022, apparently he left, moved to Austin, Texas, which is where we both live today, and launched Boom and Buckets, where he is selling tractors online, everyone. So looking forward to learning more about that. And I know that in just a year, you're moving millions worth of equipment monthly and building a business based on trust. So want to learn more about the culture, the operations, the customer success there. But so interestingly, Adam got his career start as employee number one for Palantir founder Joe Lonsdale's second company, Adipur. And so all to say, lots to dig into on operations and entrepreneurship. And thanks so much for being with us, Adam. Thank I'd you for having me. Excited to dig in. Yeah. And I'd love to get started with just asking, who is Adam today in your words? Um, that's a good question. I, I think... You know, the professional side of me, I've tried to carve out a career as, um, you know, world-class operator and builder of companies. Um, I think a lot of that's art and science and kind of both of those. And so always striving to get better. And then um, personally, you know, trying to have deep, meaningful relationships and spend time with people that, you know, I love and I enjoy um, and try to remove kind of the, the work and personal lives as much as possible. Like uh, I love to be off of work when I'm off of work and 100% on when I'm on. I'm so with you. Let's take it all the way back to Adam yeah. growing up as a kid and some of your formative experiences. What were those into making you into this human that you are? Man, there's a lot of like those kind of touchstone memories, but I think some that are interesting. Um, we moved some growing up, not as much as you would if you were in military family, but a little bit. And I, I was lucky enough to go to like a private alternative school for a little bit. And they had a kind of one unstructured day where uh, they helped kind of kids create things. And so it was woodworking, it was shop, it was art, it was like building stuff outside. And I really enjoyed kind of that side of the brain. And I think um, that one day a week was like very enriching to me and like probably kind of expanded my horizons a little bit. And that would have been fifth or sixth grade on there. Um, and then like that kind of planted a seed of like, hey, there's more than just like pure academics when it comes to creating things and studying and learning. And so high school, like we went to a, a small high school in Spokane, Washington. It was kind of rural. They didn't have a, a lunch program. And so my senior year, like we'd make hamburgers for everybody and charge them for that. And that was like, you know, very <laughs> early career things like same thing on the internet, like I had an eBay account from the time I was probably 12, maybe 11. 
um, selling stuff. Like I get my mom take me to the mall and go buy stuff to sell that people, you know, the other <laughs> the world wide. So, um, all that's to say, like, there's a bunch of small formative memories, but like very much a trend line of like building, creating and doing stuff and like, um, getting very excited when I can go do new things. I will come back in a minute to the entrepreneurship, but I'm so curious, what impact do you feel moving so much growing up had on you? I, I think like you fast forward now, you know, I graduated high school in 05. So, you know, I'm approaching kind of two decades outside of it. I, I think when you're a child and moving, you think that it's, you know, unfair or different and whatever you had is probably not going to have, like not going to exist in the new place. Yeah. And I think you pretty quickly realize that that's not the case. Like the, the kids are pretty pliable and malleable in a way that parents don't always expect. Like, you go and you make new friends and especially, you know, growing up maybe pre high school making new friends is pretty easy. And you learn a skill set of like, you know, how to relate to people, how to ask questions, how to be interested in what other people are interested in, how to be kind of like reflexive, like empathy in the sense of like, when you move around a little bit, you learn like to get into the things that other people are into, which is, you know, a terrific trait when you're a, an adult on that side. I'd say like the counterpoint to that is that, you know, you, you have less of a sense of deep community, um, where, you know, I meet people and they go back to the same, uh, house that they grew up in all the time. And, you know, they have a deep kind of family network. And so I think it's a little bit easier to be surface level when you have some of the, that experience as opposed to like deep, deep roots in a place. Yeah. And I'm hearing just even being able to relate to folks from different backgrounds because you are more practiced yeah. in creating those brand new connections, whereas you might, uh, have fewer connections with a community that you grew up with yeah I, i've never i've never had trepidation as an adult of doing new things and i think yeah. a lot of that's from my childhood yeah that's awesome and then the other thread i was hearing in your tapestry of growing up adam is entrepreneurship it sounds like you were this kid who was finding ways to build businesses or just trade and you found interest in this growing up say more yeah, like there's always like an intellectual curiosity, like some entrepreneurs are like deep technical hackers. Other ones are like looking for an edge or like a little bit more hustling. Like, yeah, I'd say like I'm somewhere between those two things. I always like to figure out how like systems work and then always try to figure out like uh, a way to either make money or make an impact in those things. And so like I used to buy Jordans like, you know, the the, the Nike shoe um, mm -hmm. or Jordan brand shoe. Uh, and resell them. And so like, you know, I place uh, a ton of orders and I get them and like, you know, there's whole markets for like sneaker resale now, but like <laughs> when I was doing that 15, 20 years ago, like it was pretty easy to have a little bit of an edge. You just need to find a retailer that had them in a, in a town that wasn't nearly as popular. Um, and so things like that just always interest me. Like these little, like getting deep into sub community and like realizing what motivates those people and, you know, if you're, if you're smart, you can probably rub sticks together and figure out a way to light a fire under something. Absolutely. Kind of the arbitrage opportunity, finding those. Yeah, or, totally. Yeah. Like there's always something that somebody's interested in that you can provide value for. 100%. So it sounds like your journey into entrepreneurship then was more natural. These were things that you enjoyed doing. I know you went to university, you studied finance, you yeah. left because you learned, you know what, a career in finance isn't really for me. You worked for some startups. Uh, you enjoyed Thanks. that better. Say more about this journey. Why I ask this question is because I think it's really important point. So many uh, college graduates 
to really yeah. struggle with figuring out what should I study? And there's a lot of pressure in this period of life to figure out oh, what should I do with my life? And then it turns out actually three quarters of college grads don't end up doing anything related to their major. And this, yeah. I think we could benefit a lot from this being more of an exploratory phase and love that your story is similar to that. So curious what you discovered about yourself then. Yeah, I, I think people have an extreme like mimetic desire to like follow a syllabus. Yeah. And like college is exactly that. If you do what's written on the syllabus, you'll get an A. Like I just thought that stuff was so stupid. And I don't know <laughs> why, I, but like, you know, I, I there was kind of like binomial distribution in terms of my grades. I'd either get good grades, mediocre grades, and I'd get mediocre grades in the classes that I was just like incredibly poor. Like the teacher yeah. just like read the book. I was like, F this, I can read the book on the weekends. I can read it in the mornings. I should like spending my time doing things that I think are more like interesting. And then the ones that like I got great ones in were like open-ended exploratory, like traditional, like liberal arts in the sense of like challenging yourself to like think through problems. And like that type of stuff really interests me. And I think finance is an interesting skill set, but as applied, particularly uh, in the past decade, it is very much the syllabus path. It is... Hey, you put in your two years as a associate, you'll become an analyst. Analyst, you'll become, uh, you know, a, a VP, VP, eventually yeah. maybe a director, MD. And in 25 years from now, you'll have a great life. Um, <laughs> that just like didn't appeal to me. And like, there's a bunch of things about the work culture in those places that didn't appeal to me. Um, but you know, the, the strict hierarchy was one that like your boss is always going to take your idea and idea in most of those places is very rarely meritocracies in Wall Street. Um, and so I got back to school and I was like, what am I doing? Like, this is not what I wanted. It doesn't match the things that I'm interested in. Like, uh, there's no path that somebody from Deloitte or Accenture or a consulting company could sell me that says 15 years from now, I want to be happy. Can I pause and you so, here, Adam? Yeah. Because I think yeah. this is also an interesting point. There are so many kids slash newly new college grads who may have this thought, but don't actually act on it. So again, two thirds of Americans don't like what they do for work. Yeah. And what is it? Do you feel like you remember what an experience or what it was really that gave you this pause and you acted on, you know what, this isn't for me. I'm going to try something else because that that is unique, fairly less common and brave to figure out yeah. so young. Yeah, I, I would say that there was two instances and I'll leave out the company's names and the, the job titles of the folks, but the, the first summer we do all this research and analysis and I'd be working uh, Monday through Thursday and then Friday my boss would present it and my boss would get kudos. And then Monday <laughs> through Thursday, I would talk to, my boss would talk to me about what color sales you should get for a sailboat. Like, oh my goodness. Like, yeah, and it was like, and I get it. I'm a junior person. I'm doing like Excel wrangling, like, you know, got that first position because we knew somebody knew somebody and like i interviewed like i get it but like also it's just like it's lame and then the second summer i was sitting on a trading desk and the nature of a trading desk is that you uh are competing oftentimes against your customers and so the thing that we were trading were commodities and so uh we had a buy rate and a sell rate and then you're taking the spread in between as your profit margin and so you're on the phone to somebody and you're literally figuring out how much money you can make from them as opposed to enabling their business. Yeah. And that just like felt fundamentally wrong to me that you were going around like picking up other people's crumbs as opposed to making the pie bigger. Yeah. If you're really thinking about making the pie bigger, you would come up with different products, features, like functionality that would do that. It'd be like, 
hey, here's how you enable trade. By the way, we do bill pay internationally. You're like, you know, all of these startups we've seen over the past 15 years. And so those are neither singular instances, but they are certainly emblematic of the things that I want to do. I want to create value and make the pie bigger um, after both of those summers. And really good for you, Adam. You noticed things that weren't aligned with your values. You even mentioned when you were a kid, you wanted to add value to the folks that you were providing whatever services or selling whatever to. Uh, and we just, we both know so many folks who are in these situations and don't make changes. And so uh, this is a nice example. And I've been through this as well. So many, many examples of this. All right. I know that you came back, you finished your degree, and then you realized you wanted to work in the startup space, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then your first role, how did you even land this? You ended up working with Adiper and Joe's team. You mentioned this is where you saw what greatness is like. I'm really yeah. curious to dig into what specifically was greatness in a startup for you. So how did I get there? And then what did greatness look like? So how did I get there? Um, this is April, my senior year. Most of my friends have accepted some sort of, you know, analyst or associate program. And they're like going to like, you know, an accounting firm, a consulting firm, a bank or something. And they'd all like locked up their jobs in like December and January. Yeah. And they're like, at me, like looking at me <laughs> like, it's an idiot. Like clearly he's going to have to like, you know, move back home or something. But the types of things that I want to do, I want to work with really small teams. Like I wasn't ready to be a founder. I didn't think I was ready to be a founder. Um, probably in retrospect, I would have been fine doing that. But um, you build your own confidence along the way. And so earlier that year, um, I talked my way into a program at Santa Clara that was mostly for graduate students. And I went to University of Santa Clara at the Jesuit School in the Bay Area. And the program um, matched you with VC mentors. And really what it did, it, it gave you a good reason to reach out to people in influential places. Hmm. And like the power of a .edu email address is such that people will respond to students that are curious about the world. And I, I pinged a bunch of people and they said like, hey, I'm you know a senior trying to figure out what's next, like would love to do kind of coffee type stuff. And this being the Bay Area, if you're familiar with the Bay Area, Palo Alto for a long time was a, like the center of the startup world. So we'd go to meet uh, University Ave and learn from a bunch of people. One of those gentlemen um, was somebody that was a little bit older than me. Uh, his name's Kevin Carter. Kevin's an amazing individual, but he was working for probably the most famous um, angel investor uh, probably ever, but certainly of that time period. And so this guy named Ron Conway, who runs a fund called SV Angel, Ron is like literally the godfather uh, of Silicon Valley. And like, you know, uh, people talk to him about them, like, like those reverential terms of like, he is the godfather. He's known everybody from, um, you know, Jobs to Larry and Sergey, like everybody. And Kevin um, was incredibly gracious and said like, these are the high potential companies that we have invested in over the past kind of six months. And pretty big list because they're doing a lot of deals. And I interviewed with a handful of Y Combinator companies and a handful of that time was like half the class because the classes were very small. And I walked away from those interviews that these guys were not smarter or better than me or something. They just took on a little bit more risk and they, you know, were paying themselves 45 K living in San Francisco, trying to eat something out on the internet. And like my sense after those interviews is like, that could just be me if that was like slightly different equation, like if I had pushed for something like that. But then I met Joe 
And if you've ever interacted with somebody like that, like talks at a mile a minute is like, is thinking at like very different level of like, what does the future actually look like as opposed to like, how do I get my first user? And I found that like incredibly compelling to like, you know, talk to somebody that's a technical visionary and like Palantir is very much a, a, a company built off of a vision as opposed to reality. And they carved the world into that reality. And so, you know, in some sense, it was the first person in an interview that really, really impressed me. And, um, apparently, you know, I didn't not impress him. Like, you know, I didn't <laughs> F it up on that side. And they gave me a job title, like uh, it was some silly job title. It was like BD or something like that. But, um, uh, pretty quickly, like came in and had an aptitude for like the, the organizational stuff, you know? Uh, how do you do stuff? How do we align? Like the, how do you get people rowing together? And like, I grew up playing sports. It's probably a little bit of that. It's probably a little bit of like your projects, like all of those things are like, okay. And like, I started doing more and more of like operations and that was everything from like, how does the office run early on to how do we organize our pipelines to how do we do planning to how do we hire to how do we build teams? And over time, you know, conceptually those tasks became much more complex. It wasn't just a singular task, but it was a, a, a system, right? It was a business system of how we're building this company. And so when you ask, like, how do you get to see what greatness looks like? Uh, Joe's greatness is a, a picture of the, the, the future or a vision of the future. And his ability is to describe what that needs to be in the future and then to empower people to get there. I think most leaders forget what that kind of glorious picture of the future looks like. And so people struggle to uh, achieve enough and to push hard enough to get to a big vision and instead stumble into a small one. And so that was like, you know, it was very impactful for me working with somebody like that. And I've been lucky to work with a few people like that, but like, you know, there's um, a reason why he's been very, very successful. Adam, it sounds like you hit the jackpot really in your first role outside of school. I think so many people oh, sort totally. of, yeah, sort yeah. Of, right. They're extremely risky because they are small teams. It's a ton of risk pre-product market fit and just 95 plus percent of them fail. And you got a great opportunity to work with sounds like a visionary thinker. Plus he had the backup of the operational diligence to execute on that, which is tough to get both at times. And then you just hit this literally right after school and got an amazing education, business education out of it. I think there's one other way in which I got lucky is if you think about a lot of companies, this is, is going to sound really basic, but like companies die because they run out of money mm -hmm. and their cash uh, drops to zero before their vision starts to work. And you work with somebody who's a force in nature, their uh, ability to fundraise is substantially better than the average founder. And so if their vision is beginning to work even a little bit, they'll be able to fundraise. Yeah. And so you know, there's just something to that. That's, um, you know, I didn't know that going in and I value that a lot now. And when I talk to founders about fundraising and they say, I did 20 meetings and nobody invested. I was like, that's insane. You should be doing 200 meetings. I like, yeah. there's just a different level when you actually see what it takes to get that shit done. And like, mm -hmm. I think that was the biggest thing about Joe's that like that company, it's like wildly successful. It's those nine figures of ARR and it manages $4.5 trillion platform. But in every company that I've been in like that, there was times where the, the the founder had to push to make it a reality and had to push in a way that the average person has no idea about. Yeah. I should say the average employee has no idea about. 
So it's all about the scale. Yeah. You left to try building a company of your own. And the first try, it doesn't work out. And I think you had, you had shared this was because of go-to-market strategies weren't quite there yet. Um, no. I'm curious now in hindsight, what do you feel uh, was lacking slash how would you handle it differently? Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. So I think there's like two probably points that I would take away from there. And I have taken away and I have internalized. One of those points um, it is business generally the goal of building a company eventually turns into dollars, right? You need to make money and the product is the way to make money. And the way to get the product in the hands of customers is you're good at market motion. And I, I think coming from the out of power experience, we didn't have a strong go to market motion initially because Joe knew uh, and had built an incredible network of wealth advisors. And so we could mm -hmm. get in front of a lot of people like, Man, we had, we had one day on just our sales line that nobody called it out of our, uh, a guy that manages $25 billion called and just wanted to learn about what we were building. And like, that doesn't happen to other companies. And so yeah, I probably didn't have the samples to realize that the, I was living an anomalous experience in my first chapter. So that's one. And then two, I think, again, it goes back to like raising money. And I've come to internalize this one in the years since shutting that business down. So we sold it. The team got acquired, but like not a great outcome. So like, we'll call it an L for the most part. But I think what we should have done is kept going and we should have mm. aggressively raised money. And the reason being is that our thoughts about the market were correct, but our timing was off. And if we had more time in the market, we probably would have gotten to a place where we could have won. And that time in the market might've been another 18 months, might've been another two years, but with like five employees, it's not an insane amount of money. And so the conviction in your decision-making about strategy, like I think we've been beaten up on the go-to-market side, but they had nothing had proven us wrong on the kind of strategy and the market need for this product. And so in subsequent years, we saw two companies get founded uh, about the time that we were kind of packing up shop on that business that turned out to be pretty successful. And I, I shouldn't say that their success would have been my success. That's not fair. They're different teams with different strategies and tactics there. But I think we were right about the market and we could have built something with more time in the market. And so that I just didn't know, you know, like it seems like a really long time to work on something for two years when you're like in your twenties and why? Because you just spent 10% of your entire life on that thing. And when you spend two years of something in your thirties or your forties, it's 5% of your life or 7% of your life. And it's just a very different way to think about time. Right. Yeah. It felt like forever in that moment. And you know, I didn't handle stress well and a bunch of other things, but in retrospect, now I've been doing this current company longer than we ever did that company. And, you know, I'm sitting at a place where I see the vision and, but I see all these like obstacles that we still have to get over, but now I have the kind of context of like, these things take time. Yeah. And Hey, you have to live to learn as well. So sounds like you handled that the best you could at the time. I know that you transitioned from that. You were cash strapped, which is a very real thing yeah. for humans, period. We all need to pay the bills, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And you landed somewhere where, which wasn't the best fit, which happens when we are running away from things or fear-driven versus joy-driven, meeting things that are right for us. Another common experience there that I just wanted to highlight so folks can see examples. But then you ended up landing at Bolt, which we briefly yeah. talked about. And you led their operations team there. For other entrepreneurs, 
many of us going through operational challenges. I'll let you share whatever examples you can, what you learned operationally. I, I think that kind of, I can set a little context there. Um, I joined there in 2017, they stayed through 2020. Um, subsequent to like, after I left the company raised like another $500 million or $600 million, like insane amount of capital, um, and left on absolutely great terms. I think Ryan Breslow is great. Like we'll text occasionally, like rooting for love and his next set of companies and like a lot of the team there. Um, and I learned a lot from it. I learned a lot from the people that we were exposed to on our side there. You know, the things that I'd be particularly proud of and that I, I think everybody should walk away with is that the that early team, the first kind of 75, like maybe 100 people that we hired are absolutely exceptional. Like we have a Slack That's group huge. and we have a Signal group and we like talk to each other regularly. And like, it's very cool seeing them go both run very substantial businesses now as like executives in their new role. So like for a salesperson as a CRO, my first biz ops hire is running a very large chunk of one of the, the fastest growing like corporate payment cards. Like these people are exceptional and it was an absolute joy to work with them. Um, and then the other thing is that like, I'd say in the case of both, but in many companies, like having a very crystal clear understanding of the market dynamics, I, I think was just, it's really hard to grasp the strategy behind all the other incumbent players. But the more that you think about the game theory behind what they're likely to do and why they're likely to agree or not agree to something, I think it sets you up for success. There's some businesses that um, do not have platform risk that you can impose your force of will on the market. And in those businesses, you just build a better product and the customers come. Yeah. In the businesses where you have platform risk, so if you're building on top of Twitter right now, I would think very deeply about what Elon Musk is likely to do or not to do, right? In our case, it was Shopify and Magento and all these e-commerce platforms. And our early success, encourage them to change our strategy in certain ways that then impacted our business. And so um, it's very hard to look at that, you know, from day zero, but in certain cases, you need a, an absolutely extreme amount of rigor in terms of strategy. Yeah, totally. I'm also curious, did you have learnings there in terms of how to handle controversy, bad press? Yeah. So when I left in 2020, the company was a, a Silicon Valley darling in the sense yeah. of from zero revenue to, you know, many tens of millions in run rate, like, customers were happy in signing up and that's not to say i left and bad things happened but like <laughs> the narrative certainly changed i shouldn't have let adam go <laughs> that's not what i would take away from that one but you know the narrative change and um i i think to some extent like i'd be wary of the tall poppy syndrome are you familiar with it no so in a field full of poppies the tall one is the one that stands out and this is a particular analogy that is wrapped for teenage girls where the one that stands out gets made fun of by the peer group or something like that. So it's mm -hmm. an analogy that a mom might say sometimes. And I think Bolt became a, a tall poppy of that time, both with their fundraising, with their press, with their Twitter strategy, and a bunch of things like that where um, I think it made it an easy target for folks to look at. Yeah. And... This is not a comment of bull. Uh, this is a comment about any company that's growing is that when you peel it back, there's always some stuff that's not perfect, right? There's always something that should have been automated that has a team doing it. There's always uh, an early sales promise that isn't fulfilled. 
And any reporter worth their salt can find something that the company has done that in a certain light can always um, look less than good. And so I think it's, I, I would be careful of the tall poppy syndrome. Like yeah. You don't always want to be waving the flag and draw attention. That makes a ton of sense. And I think we can talk about more operations work at Boom and Bucket anyway. Speaking of which, how did you get into selling tractors online, Adam? You know, when you break up, sometimes you do the opposite of what you were doing before. Yeah. You dated somebody goth, now you start going to church. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's not exactly that, but it's a little bit of that. <laughs> okay. So, uh, we did e commerce payments before, right? Yeah. A lot of DTC brands, that type of thing. And absolutely love the space. The e-commerce story has been beaten to death in terms of the press. You know, the, the rise, the steady growth of 10 to 15% for two or three decades, still on the trend line. The COVID thing blew it out of proportion, but like the trend line's back. But the part that hasn't grown for as long or as steep was B2B. Mm. And I'm a big believer that anytime that you have a catalog and you got to order uh, from a catalog by calling your rep, uh, and then they ship it in the B2B world, there should probably be a digital solution for that. And so I had this thesis of wanting to be in that space. And I want to be in a business that you can somehow use data to then um, influence uh, the, the product. And so in some of those, you might look at demand data and some other ones, like in our case, like we underwrite machine quality and conditioning, set pricing, put a guarantee behind it. I love businesses that if you get the first thing right, you can do the second and the third thing. And why is that? It goes back to like my childhood of an antsy individual. Uh, I like those things that compound and I think they end up being, building pretty durable businesses. And so I'm walking around in 2020 in the middle of COVID and, you know, noodling about this. And I'm talking to everybody smart that I possibly can. I'm talking to VCs. I'm talking to former coworkers. I'm talking to friends of friends. I'm getting introduced to people that cover industrials at big like investment banks, like, and pretty quickly, my schedule started filling up and it started going from, you know, one or two things a day to like, I had a full-time job again in terms of like investigating and learning. Hmm. And I got introduced to one of my two co-founders during that process. Uh, my co-founders, Aaron Klein and Samir Shah, um, both exceptional individuals and unique backgrounds and stories, which make them absolutely fantastic for this business. But um, the important, pertinent thing for this story is that they'd sold a business to Caterpillar a few years ago. So the big yellow equipment company. Mm -hmm. And I explained what I was interested in. Then they were like, this space, this is the one. This is and it. Samir had already put together kind of a Google Doc with some you know high-level stats and some research. But we spent from September through probably February of that year just talking to customers. And I'd carve out a little time. And Aaron would carve out some time. And Samir would carve out some time. And if you were selling a piece of equipment on Craigslist, or Facebook Marketplace or something, we picked up the phone, we just gave you a call and we said, hey, why are you doing this? Yeah. Like, why are you doing it a different way? Do you like it? What works? What doesn't? Blah, blah, blah. And the kind of end of that process, we had this kind of 125 page doc of lessons learned about what we thought was right and wrong about the space and what we thought the opportunity set was. And we summarized those things. We turned them into kind of some mini um, hypotheses and we started testing those and then eventually started fundraising. But Things that I like about this space, one, the people are absolutely fantastic. Like they are out there, you know, they, they've built incredible businesses oftentimes, like multi-generational family businesses by controlling risk in a very, very hard space. 
they oftentimes have employees that are there for their entire life. Hmm. You know, they, they work at these places for 10, 15, 20 years. That's, That's very, very thing. cool to see. Yeah. Yeah. And the impact is like, it's fun. Like as soon as your <laughs> eyes open up in the construction world, like you drive around, like you everywhere. and I both in Austin, yeah. you it's, look around, how many cranes are there? Yeah, everywhere. Yep. And so, you know, I, I kind of fell in love with this space in a bunch of different ways, but, you know, I was lucky that I met Aaron and Samir and then lucky that we got exposed to it. I think if you're just looking at it academically, it's probably a little less interesting than if you really get like your hands dirty. You're in the picks and shovels business, which is always useful, always ongoing. Yeah. I feel like construction is something that's always happening in any developing community society anyway. So totally get that. I want to call out again for this. You mentioned you did customer research from September to February. You end up with a 125 page document, extremely important. Know your customer, understand their pain points. What can you do better? Come up with these hypotheses. So few founders do this properly. I want to call that out. And then I'm so glad you brought up your co-founders. You had described Samir and Aaron as incredibly smart, hardworking, and humble. And we know this, right? Having a great co-founder is great is the best option. And then having a poor co-founder is worse than just working by yourself. Lots of entrepreneurs are figuring out how do I find a good co-founder? What, what should I be looking for? Things like, so what do you think is essential for a co-founder for those looking for one? Sounds like these guys had experience in the space. You respect them, but. I think I had trepidation about working with co-founders. If you'd asked me in the beginning of the process, I would have told you that I wanted to be a solo co-founder. Mm-hmm. And why, like, I've been exposed to most, most of the key parts of running a business and the kind of high technology. I've built, you know, exceptional engineering teams by partnering with uh, both uh, early engineering hires and later VP of edges that we recruited and hired. And I, I built the financing side and the go-to-market side and all these things. And so I, I thought I could do it. Yeah. And then I met these guys and like one of the market was interesting. Like I wouldn't do this market without them. But I think more importantly, like we did our first kind of set of offsites. And our offsites were less focused on the market and the business and more focused on what does it mean to work together? What what are the kind of the value sets in which, hey, if we have an argument, how do we solve it? What are the uh, appropriate areas of responsibility if we work together in a way that gives everybody clear ownerships and mandates inside of their area um, and allows people to have, you know, kind of self-actualization or realization within those areas? And then what are the ways in which we run a, run a company? And there's no right way to run a company, but there's a heck of a lot of wrong ways. Yeah. And so, you know, aligning on the things that we really want to value in terms of how do we hire, how do we fire, how do we reward, how do we compensate, um, all those things. And then, you know, I, I think fundamentally we align on the kind of way we think about, I don't want to say building a business, but like building a venture backed business in the sense of like, how much risk do you want to take? How, like, how quickly do you want to go through that risk? Um, how hard do you want to push? Because there's a, you could be in a seed stage company for five years if you wanted to, yeah. or you could be a company that raises every nine months. Yeah. And there's Very just different, different amount business. of work. To, yeah, exactly. And so we spent a lot of time and we were lucky that, um, one, a bunch of investors that had backed both prior companies and out of bar, you know, kind of were around the basket while we were trying to figure out what we wanted to start on. And we were able to leverage them as well as uh, advisors, like and kind of coaches that we used to have that like help us have some of those difficult conversations of like, hey, what should we really be focused on here if we want to build a durable company? And so, you know, we built a foundation. I don't, 
it's like TBD if that foundation is going to have a skyscraper on it yet to use a building analogy. Um, but I think that was really helpful because now fast forward two years, like our fundamental challenges have not been working together, but I'm building a great business, which is where you want it to be. I so love that you described it as you built a foundation because I so believe in that as well. It's also the approach I take. And I like to say that culture is like fast drying cement. It's important to build it as soon as you get started, which sounds like what you yep. did. And sounds like the fast drying cement has been working for you so far because it sounds like it is what you do and not just what you talk about. For folks listening, culture can be tricky. How have you been implementing that into what you do on a day-to-day -day as opposed to just what you talk about? Yeah, it's very funny. Like, again, there's like not a singular playbook. It's like a discipline in the sense that like exercise is a discipline. Yeah. There's plenty of people that go on TV that like tell you about eating right that don't look like they eat right. You know what I mean? Like, you know, plenty of doctors are overweight. Like, and so what you really have to do is that you have to take your vitamins every single day. And so hiring, firing, management, performance, like goal setting, accountability, like those are the vitamins and you got to do it every single day. And if you don't do it, so like if you see something that needs feedback, so like, hey, the the standard in our business is if you take a lead, you BCC the list and know that to show everybody that you have it. If mm -hmm. you see somebody not do that, you have to course correct quickly with feedback and say, hey, here's the playbook for that type of stuff. When you don't do it, it has this impact. And so like, yeah. we try to be a feedback driven culture on those type of things to make a bunch of minor adjustments as opposed to macro adjustments. Well, when you're making like macro adjustments, it's usually because you've gone too far. And like your work with founders is usually such that they get to a crisis moment hmm. where they're like, oh my God, my team's not performing or oh my God, my executive sucks. Fast, like go back like six months ago. You hired this executive for a reason. I bet they don't suck, but I bet what happened was that you expected them to be great and didn't give them feedback along the way. And so like we try to take our vitamins up our boom bucket. On that side. How do you handle performance? How do you set up the team to perform well? In the earliest stages, it, it's hard because effort doesn't always lead to impact or outcomes. And what I mean by that is that if you're selling a new product in the market, you can be putting in the hours, but if something is wrong with the product market fit, the feature set, what you're pitching there, it's not from an absence of sweat that it yeah. won't be successful. And so you want to look for early indications. And so like in sales, for example, like we care deeply about activities at this stage of our business. We, we do care about pipeline, don't get me wrong, but like we want to know that we're putting in the effort to get outcomes and then we learn from that effort to make better outcomes happen. And there's a lot of that across the business. Um, the thing that we deeply care about is like people making their own commitments. And what I mean by that is like, if we have something well described of an issue that is in your area of responsibility, Jennifer, um, if it is clearly defined in the sense that a third party can read about it, and then you've committed to date, that date is the due date, unless you tell me that you're going to change it. And so the concept is impeccable agreements from the, the um, that. 15 commitments of conscious leadership and Matt Mokari is big on this too, but like yeah. it, it's your determination, not mine of when stuff's going to 100%. So I'm hearing a combination yeah. of clearly defined areas of responsibilities with yeah. a clear person who's in charge, the involved parties who need to provide input, the decision maker, that's all clearly defined. Mm -hmm. Impeccable agreements of you say what you're going to do by when, and if you need to modify, you 
alert parties in advance so folks can then adjust their own timelines while you try to stick to it. And you're focusing on the efforts, the activities that you have control over because you don't really have control over the outcome. And then I like what you, we talked about earlier about the scale of activities required to deliver on the outcomes. Adam, this was so lovely. In the few yeah. minutes we have left, I kind of want to ask you a non-work question. So I'm all uh, about life design, both at work and not work. But, but just briefly, how are you designing outside of work? I know you live in Austin. Uh, you have a dog. What's important to you that gives you joy outside of work that you prioritize? We have a puppy. One, I have a great relationship with my significant other. She's mm. very supportive on that side. And so we try to, you know, continuously invest in that to make sure that that is rewarding for both of us. Um, two, you know, moving to a new city, I think the trap is that you go to work every single day and your, your coworkers become your friends, which is fine. But the problem with that is it's hard to give feedback and it's hard to be the manager and the boss. And so when we moved here, we tried very hard to build a network that was, you know, uh, folks that we enjoyed spending time with. And it wasn't just what it looked like in San Francisco, New York, but it was uniquely and more authentically of this place. And so that's been a lot of fun for us. And so it's barbecues with the neighbors, it stays with Bart and it's yeah. a nice blend of former coworkers, you know, transplants, Austinites, tech, non-tech, and that's important. And then finally, um, there's a long stretch of like my entrepreneurial journey where I, I, did not do a great job of taking care of self. Like I was blessed growing up that I was like pretty athletic and like, you know, naturally like not like, you know, I don't put on a ton of weight super easily, but like that doesn't mean you're healthy, you know? And so like, you know, especially the bolt times, like I probably eat out three to four nights a week. I'd often have something after that. And then I'd be back in the office, like frequently pretty early in the morning. And that doesn't leave a lot of time for like taking care of yourself. And so here we try much harder to do that. The dog is like an intentional <laughs> thing to do that. So like I was walking at 630 this morning. Like I wasn't doing that two months ago before we had a little puppy. Yeah. Same thing at night. So like it's a few extra miles every single day. And like joined the gym, got a trainer, like all that stuff to like design something that has like yeah, your, your work on one side, like your family relationships, your like health and well-being, like. You know, there's no perfect balance, but like you got to get a little bit of everything. Beautiful. That was so well said. Adam, I loved chatting and getting to know you. Talk to you soon. Yeah. Likewise. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like what you hear, leave a review and share. <laughs>